0: Welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. This is Christine Worth, and today what we're going to do is continue with the James Cron testimony. In the last episode, episode 77, we had just had uh, Mr. Mulder of Darley's defense team take over his questioning. And so... First, we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, that episode, what they were talking about then. And then we're going to get right into the continuation of Mr. Mulder's uh, questioning of James Cron. So first, let's recap a little bit what we learned in the previous episode. All right, so in the last episode of the Darley Routier trial we again heard from James Cron, And I'm going to just really, really briefly recap that episode for you Um, in the event that you do want to hear the entire thing. It is episode number 78. Now, essentially, the prosecution has Officer Chris Frosch demonstrate how easy or not it would be to get through this actual garage window, which they actually have there in court. He shows the height that the window was open to. He removes the screen to demonstrate how easy it is to get the screen in and out of this window. And then Officer Frosch climbs through it at least four different times uh, to reenact the intruder's movements. Now the defense then points out that, hey, the whole time that he goes through this window, he never once touched the windowsill during the demonstration. And then when Kron is then cross-examined by Darley's defense team, Kron then continues and he starts talking about a bloody shoe print that was found in the garage and he claimed that it was tracked in by investigators. But Mulder questions, how could this print be left so far inside the garage without other prints having led up to that and Kron says something about you know there must have been blood droplets on the shoes or something along those lines Mulder then starts talking about Kron's actual uh, credentials that uh, you know how he mentioned he went to all these classes he went to this class for the FBI or at the FBI Academy and so forth and so on and it kind of leaves the jury thinking that well maybe what Cron was saying about his instruction was maybe a little bit enhanced. I'll just say it that way. The discussion then moves to issues surrounding the contamination of the crime scene and the mishandling of the especially the photography because the pictures weren't exactly taken the way that they should have been. And you, if you're really interested in this, you can go back and listen to the entire episode. But it was very clear that the person doing the photography of this crime scene wasn't very well-versed on the proper way to take photographs, which is why, if you've ever looked at any of the photos of this crime scene, you will see large red arrows that point start at one photo and point to a different photo because they're supposed to go together, but because of how the pictures were taken, they don't end up on one photo, so they have to kind of put them together like a puzzle piece. Mulder then asks if Cron did ever go and check the officer's shoe prints and ends up implying that, you know, these officers likely contaminated the crime scene just by simply walking around because there's these bloody footprints everywhere. They then move on to fingerprints. Uh, There were two unidentified prints that uh, were actually pretty good, it sounded like. They even met Kron's own personal threshold in regards to the number of points that would have to be on these fingerprints in order for him to make an identification. However, even though they met his own personal threshold, for some reason, he didn't believe that... were worthy of checking out and so he never identified them and the way that it is left off in the previous episode they essentially go to break and then we'll come back to this in this particular episode there was a bloody partial shoe print in the kitchen and this is also being mentioned as being left by an officer so that's kind of where the last one ended up and this one takes off exactly where they left off about this bloody partial shoe print in the kitchen. So let's go ahead and listen to that now. And they had just, in the previous episode, they had just broken for lunch. They all are now back in the courtroom and the questioning is ready to begin again by Mr. Douglas Mulder. And again, he's still questioning James Cron. I think when we quit, Lieutenant, we were talking about a shoe impression that was in the kitchen in blood. Yes, that's correct. Is that right? Yes. And it was just a lone impression there. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And you subsequently identified that as Sergeant Walling's print. Yes. As being consistent with his heel print. I don't remember if it was left or right, but it was his footprint. Okay, did you see that that morning or afternoon? Through, during the initial walkthrough. Oh, you saw it during the initial walkthrough? Yes. And is that when you looked on the bottom of his foot to see if his sole configuration corresponded with that? No, that came later when I had everybody there shoe print inked and impressions made of everybody at the scene. Okay, did you see the, are you telling the jury that that, in your judgment, resulted from a blood drops that he stepped in? Oh no. How he got it, I don't know. It was either off of the hallway or the carpet in the living room. I understand. But it's from me to you into the room? Oh yes. So unless he took one big leap, he had to walk several times and you only found the one. If you were walking from the carpeted area in the den, he walked up to where you were before you saw that one heel print. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, well, my question to you is this, sir. Why did you not see the other heel prints as he walked off leading up to that? I have no idea. There was just that one isolated heel print. You aren't suggesting to the jury that he hopscotched on one foot up to that deal and finally put his heel down, are you? No, no, I wouldn't say that. That doesn't make any sense, does it? No. Are you saying that there is just no explanation? That I know of there isn't. Unless just didn't deposit. Maybe he didn't step hard enough. I don't know why. But it was one bloody print there that was his shoe. But how? Why there wasn't another trail? I don't know. Well, sometimes, I guess, there is more than one explanation for a bloody print. Is that right? Yes, I was waiting. I thought you were going to say more. Yes, there is. Yes. Sometimes there is more than one explanation. Sometimes there is no explanation. That's correct. And when you say it's consistent, all you mean is that that is a possibility. Yes. On the comparison or how he got the print there, on the consistent in the context that I am saying it was consistent with being his shoe, I'm not saying it is a, is that what you are getting at? You're saying it's his shoe. It's consistent with his shoe. Could be his shoe. Could be another shoe that's similar to that shoe. Oh, is the same brand, style and all? Yes, yes. But you are just saying that it is consistent with that. That means you cannot rule that one out? That's correct. Okay. There were some, you talk about some bloody barefoot prints? Yes. Yes and you said they were about the size of Darley's. Is that right? Yes. They were in the kitchen area, as I understand. That's correct. And they are here in one of these exhibits. Are they? Yes. Now, Lieutenant, as best you can, would you tell the jury just approximately where these footprints were using that exhibit there? If you can. May I step down? The court then says you may. Mr. Mulder then asks, Can y'all see that? And the witness, Kron, says, Well, let me turn it this way. Mr. Mulder says, All right. And Kron continues, The bare, bloody footprints were in this area here. All right. Just approximately the bare, bloody footprints are right here. Well, you're indicating an area there, I suspect, that is some six or seven feet. Not quite that far. It's more like five feet from the area of the counter. All right. Was there between the sink and the edge of the counter? All right. Well, can you see both of them in State's Exhibit Number 44-A? No. Okay. Let me hand you what's been marked for identification record purposes as Defendant's Exhibit 41. And I'll ask if you recognize that exhibit. I do. All right. Does that show both of the prints? I would have to look at the other picture, but I believe it does. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, it does. Okay. Can you kind of can you show the jury the footprints? One, excuse me. One is here and the other is in this here. Okay. And now this is the one in the middle right here is going to be in this proximity because you can see that rug? Yes. Okay. Approximately how far apart were these two footprints? I would have to look at the picture, not very far, approximately 16 inches. Okay, those are 12 inch tiles, so it would be about 16 inches. All right, if we have got this one in the, I guess the tile would have a diamond in the middle, is that it? These bifocals, I have to look through them. Yes, are your eyes getting worse with age? not on looking at prints and evidence, but on reading and some photographs. Let's see if they could print these in Braille. All right, this is the tile right there. Okay, show me that again. Okay, the heavier white line is the tile and there is another tile right there. Okay, I got it. All right. Were these the only two footprints that you found? They were the clearest, but there were other little barefoot prints, steps, but those are the, they are complete from heel toe to heel. But you are not saying that there wasn't other barefoot traffic through there, are you? Other than those? Yeah. No, there wasn't. I mean, there was, as a matter of fact, wasn't there? Barefoot tracks? Yes, sir. Other steps? Yes. Yes, sir. Did you, was this rug taken into custody? I don't know. Well, I thought you were there as the advisor. I didn't tell them to pick up each individual little item, so I don't know if it was. I believe it was, but that would be an assumption on my part. Okay, well, that is the rug that is going to be here in the front of the sink, right? Yes, sir. Can y'all see that? How about this rug back here by the utility room? Did you examine that? The utility room? Not closely. I just looked at it for blood. I did look at it, and there was some blood drops on it. You had your bifocals on, I assume? I did. Okay, and you examined it for blood? Did you see any blood on it? There were a few drops. There was blood on it? Yes. Do you know how the blood got there? No. Okay, you know, I wrote this down yesterday when you were on the stand, and you said there was no blood in the garage. In the garage? Yes, that's right. You remember that? You remember yesterday you said that? That's correct. But then when you got on the stand today, you told the jury that there was blood in the garage. Well, that was the blood that was transported out there after we made our investigation and I made the walkthrough. That wasn't out there when I... It came because somebody stepped out and left it after I inspected the garage. Okay. Rather than overlooking it? Yes. Okay. But you do recall telling them yesterday that you found no blood in the garage? Yes, that would have been a true statement. Well, no, it can't be both ways. There's either blood in the garage or there isn't. Well, there wasn't blood when I arrived and inspected it. The blood was transported out there later by some officer or, well, there were no paramedics, so it must have been an officer. Right there visibly as I stepped out from the garage, if it had been a snake, it would have bit me, as the expression goes. Well, what you meant was the first time through, you didn't see any blood. I didn't see any blood the first time through. Now, the first time, as I understand it, that you and neighbors? Yes. And Hamilton? On the walkthrough? Right. No, it was neighbors. Walling? Walling and Maine. And Maine? Yes. Okay. And you? Yes. And the four of you walked through. Is that right? Yes. And you said you walked in and you, as you came in, you came in the entry, you came in the entry, just show the jury kind of how you, I am going to have to stand up. When I first arrived with the officers into the scene, I came in the front door, went down the hallway leading to the back of the house. Now, you are talking as you go along, aren't you? Yes, yes, sir this is kind of OJT for the guys that are walking along with you. Well, a conference, more or less. They were advising me what they were informed as to what occurred, so I could plan an attack or an action, and I was talking. Now, Maine didn't tell you what had occurred, did he? No, it was Walling. Yes, Sergeant Walling. Walling told you. All right. And what he was advised, what had happened, you know, that we, from who? Did he say who told him what happened? Yes, he told me the mother of the boys. Told him what happened? Yes. He said she was stabbed, the boys were stabbed, and one of them was still there, the other one was transported. It was general information, so I could, you know, I needed to know. I needed to know if they came in here if this was a broken window or what it was just a rundown like it would get from a complainant sure it couldn't have taken him long to tell you there wasn't much to tell just that she was stabbed she fought with the guy here that he ran out through here she followed him picked up the knife called 911 just basic did he tell you that he got that information from her in less than 30 seconds no he didn't. I didn't ask him. No, he just said, This is what she told me. Okay. Do you want me to finish that walkthrough? Yes. Mm-hmm. I walked through the hall. I entered the family room here. What were you looking for when you entered the family room? Well, that is the thing about a homicide. You are looking for things out of place. You really don't know what you're looking for. You know, I mean, I don't say. I am going to look around the corner and I hope I find a shotgun. It's not that way. You are looking for something out of place. Broken things, disturbed things, blood, weapons, and that sort of thing. You are just getting a mind's eye view of the scene. And once you do all that on your walkthrough, then you start to concentrate on specific areas. And since a body was here and the paramedics picked up a body here, you heard, I heard that is where we would start some of our evidence concentrations. Did you see evidence there of medical intervention? Around here, there was some tape or some of the wrappings for band-aids or something laying on the floor. Show us again. Can you see that in this area? You said in this area here, there was some tape and evidence of medical intervention. Yes, it wasn't much. It was a band-aid. Did y'all collect that? I didn't collect anything. I don't know if they did. All right. And from there, will you show us where you went from the family room? I went into the kitchen area. All right. Now, when you got in a kitchen area, you saw the vacuum cleaner, didn't you? Yes, over here. Okay. And that would be, you said you were looking for things out of the ordinary and a vacuum cleaner in the kitchen in this area is going to be out of the ordinary, isn't it? Upside down with blood on it, yes. Okay, right side up, upside down, a vacuum cleaner sitting here in the kitchen is going to be out of the ordinary, isn't it? I don't know. Come on, Jim, you know that. No, right here? Sure. Yeah, I thought you meant just in the kitchen. No, in the family room, it might be all right, but not in the kitchen. A vacuum cleaner. I mean, there was a pantry right there. They might have kept it in the pantry. Yes, but no, you are right if it was laying right out here. But if it was here, I wouldn't think that much of it because that was the pantry area. But it wasn't there, was it, Jim? No. Okay, and like I say, I thought this is unusual that is something different there is a vacuum cleaner here you probably said something to walling about it didn't you no i wasn't making my i don't recall i might have said look at this but you didn't make any notes did you no okay and why is that well i didn't have any need to at that time i made my notes later when i made the report you made the report on the 16th didn't you? On the 16th, yes, I made my verbal report that night to them. Well, you made your verbal report when you got out there by the back, didn't you? Yes, right. You are telling them, guys, this is what I think. There is no, hey, the die is cast. Right. Well, I told them after the walkthrough, when I came around the front, I said, look, we have no intruder here. Yeah, right? That was my verbal comment. That is Lieutenant Kron's analysis. After what? Did the walkthrough take 20 minutes? 20 or 30? Yes, sir. 20, 30 minutes. Okay. It was so obvious. It didn't take long. Okay. And I guess when you walked around there and saw that vacuum cleaner that you now say was out of the ordinary, you said something to Walling and Walling told you that, hey, when I come." came through here initially with Waddell, there wasn't any vacuum cleaner there. He didn't tell me that. Oh, he didn't tell you that? No. Would that have made a difference? Well, it might have made a difference if they said the living room window was, I mean, it doesn't even compute. I know it. He said, you don't have to take my word for it, Lieutenant. Not only did I not see it there, but if you will just check the man on the door, he was in here. He walked in here because he thought there was somebody hiding back here. And not only did he say there wasn't a vacuum cleaner there when he first came into the house, but he said there was nothing there that would, at this point, Mr. Greg Davis pipes up and said, I'm sorry, that is a misstatement of testimony. What they said Is that they didn't see it, not that it was not there. Mr. Mulder then responds with, okay, and continues his questioning. Well, he said he didn't see anything that would impede his traffic from the den to the sink. Did he? What else? I don't, I mean, I have no comment on that. He said he didn't see a vacuum cleaner, he didn't see anything that would impede his traffic. Mr. Greg Davis then says, I'm going to object. I don't recall the officer making that statement about being impeded. The court then says the jury is instructed to remember the testimony as they heard it. Let's move on. Mr. Mulder says, we can have the court reporter read it back. The court says, let's keep going. The questioning then continues. At any rate, you got back to the garage area, went on in the garage and saw the cut screen, didn't you? Yes, sir. Okay. And then you left and went back out. And as I recall, you went back through the utility room. Yes. Where there was blood? Yes. All four of you? Yes. And you don't know how many people had been there, through there, prior to you going through there. Do you? No. Okay. And that is why when you got these prints here, you printed the whole shebang, didn't you? Yes. Okay. I had them printed. I didn't print them. No, I understand. I understand. Anyway, you went on out through the nook and through the dining room this time? Yes. Okay. And around through the entry and around in back? That's correct. Okay. It's still dark, isn't it? Not at that time because it being June, and when I arrived around six o'clock, it was getting lighter. In fact, when I got to the backyard, we didn't need flashlights or anything. It was you know the backyard at that time of summer. You know it was getting light. It was about six thirty when you were in the back. Is that about close enough? Yes, around six thirty. Okay, and you told us about the gate back here. Yes, remember that? Yes. You looked for blood there, didn't you? I did. Okay. You, let me ask you, you expected the assailant to have blood to be bleeding? No. I would have assumed, unless he accidentally wounded himself during the commission of the other stabbings, I thought he might have blood from the clothing or hands or whatever from the victims. You thought he might be so saturated in blood that it would be dripping from him? Uh, No, of course not. That's not, you didn't think that, did you? No, not at all. And as a matter of fact, you wouldn't expect this guy to have much blood on him at all, would you? Now, I can't, that I can't answer. I didn't know if there was an assailant. I wouldn't have known what he was clothed in, in sweatshirt, baggy pants, he might have had clothing that could have absorbed some, but that is just one of the things to be thorough on if you would look for blood. Okay, you said an assailant? Well, one, two, three, five, I don't know. Well, could you tell? Could I tell what? How many assailants? Well, if this had been a bona fide offense, or what was I looking for? could you tell from the scene if there were one or two or three people no i couldn't tell there isn't any way you could tell is there no okay you get around the back and you are looking at the gate is that right yes and you said did you mean to imply to the jury that there were scuff marks at the base of the gate there were some scuff marks some marks where when i noticed and the officer matt walling Said that they had to kick and force it open from that lower area. He said he had to kick it open? Well, or shoved it, yeah, or pushed it with his foot. Pushed it with his foot? Yes. And there was a mark on there consistent with that? No, it was not the shape of a shoe or anything. It was just a darkish scuff mark. All right. Did it look recent? There is no way for me to tell that. You couldn't tell whether that was Walling or somebody else, could you? No. I went with the officer's statement that he touched it and kicked it there, but as far as personal knowledge, no. Did you have to kick it the second time? Oh, when I got there, it was propped open. It was open? Yes. I moved it myself later in the investigation to see how difficult it was to swing because the hinges were fouled up but when I got there, I didn't have to move it. Okay. And you don't know when the scuff mark was made on that, do you? Is that right? Outside of the officer telling me when he entered that way, but no, I don't know. All right. So you get around there and you are looking at the window from the outside. Is that right? At that time? Yes. Okay. And you don't need a flashlight, but you can look in there and you can see this thick layer of dust like fresh fallen snow. Is that right? Well, that's what you said. It would be like Robin Hood's barn if you want to use terms like that. But yes, it was like fresh fallen snow. I mean, you said fresh fallen snow. Well, the reason I said fresh fallen snow was sort of a description of powder or something on an object that you can see if something recently has gone through it. But okay, fresh fallen snow. Okay. And you noticed when Frosh, he is that fellow that came in here and he went through the window. Yes. that Did the demonstration? Three times he went through it, didn't he? Three or four? Yes. Did you see any, was there anything you could point to, to show the jury of any evidence that he went through that well i didn't process it for latence or is that what you well you are way ahead of me because you know where i'm going he didn't touch the sill oh no the only thing he touched was the window and darn if he didn't touch it the in the same place now this is going to be this is the inside of this window isn't it so the window is really like this that is the inside, all right. And darn if Frosch, it's up like this. Would you hold this for me? And darn if Frosch, when he is going through, doesn't touch it right there, where we have got those these unidentified coincidental prints, right? Yes. You noticed him do that, didn't you? Yes. Now you are not saying somebody couldn't go through that window and not leave evidence, are you? I'm saying it's highly unlikely twice especially the second time. I mean, he went through it. We have all seen this. The guy about the size of a linebacker goes through this thing four times. Well, I think the difference is he was doing his demonstration trying to get through the window, which he did knock the, he didn't even knock the screen loose. Yeah, I realize that. But the other person, an intruder, Would have had to have been leaving after three stabbings, dropping a knife with a woman, a wounded woman, a live woman behind him. It seems unlikely he would very carefully leaving a. Well, I mean, some burglars are careful and some aren't. Isn't that right? Well, we're talking about a murderer here. Well, you talk about somebody who breaks into a home, that's a burglar who commits a murder, isn't it? Yeah, in that case. But I mean, you know what a burglar is, don't you? Do you know what a murderer is? Well, sure. There is a difference. A burglar leaving a scene as opposed to a murderer with a living witness that he threw the knife down is the difference in a burglar leaving the scene. It depends. You know, you deal with the... Generally, the criminals are... That are not smart, don't you? Thank goodness. Yes, most of them. All right. And even so, Lieutenant, eight of the 21,000 deals that you have both been to or heard about on the phone, or people have come to you, or you have gone to them, or whatever it might be, the fact of the matter is 90% of them are not even caught, are they? I wouldn't go that far. What would you say? 80%? I have no percentage. I don't know. We are dealing with different agencies. Some have a higher clearance rate. I work with agencies all over North Central Texas, so I don't know their clearance rate. But you're not going to quarrel with if they have a 20% clearance rate. It's good, isn't it? I don't know. Don't know. You never kept up with that? You didn't make an X on the I'm not going to get into statistics on clearance rates of murders and so forth. Well, as long as we're talking about statistics, you said there were 4,300 and I didn't hear what you said, homicides, or you just said death cases, death. There are four types of deaths and the 4,300 included all types of deaths. So you are talking about suicides, you're talking about accidental You are talking about natural causes and you are talking about homicides. That is the four. Yes. Okay. And of course, naturally, when you arrive at a scene, you don't know what it is. It may be a suicide reported and it turns out to be a homicide. It may be reported as a homicide. It might be accidental. You have to make an investigation and prove, hopefully, either way, the cause of death. And that is where the death investigations come in. All right. And again, your jurisdiction primarily is the unincorporated area of Dallas County, is it not? When I was working with the sheriff's office? Yes, sir. I had the privilege of not being restrained by the county line. The sheriff allowed me to go out of the county to any agency that needed assistance of crime scene expertise. Anybody who would request your assistance? Yes, I have been to Texarkana, Oklahoma, just worked on many cases all over this area. Okay, I don't guess you've broken those down as to the 4,300. How many were homicides? How many were suicides? How many? I really didn't. You didn't do that? No. Okay. When I was asked to do that, it was a trial where they needed qualification and they wanted to know how many death investigations, so I included all deaths. And you were including in that where somebody calls you and asks your opinion over the phone or comes by to see you? Just a phone opinion? Yes. No, I didn't include it. I either had to work with the evidence itself, either brought to me, go to the scene, or somehow review the reports and or evidence, photographs, but not phone calls, no. They send reports to you, and you would review the reports? Yes, I would do that. Autopsy, lab reports, and so forth. Okay. That was on some of them. Okay. Now, you told the jury that in your, you have not been to the FBI crime search, scene search school, have you? No. Okay. And in fact, you have been to the you are mainly a fingerprint man. Isn't that the fact of the matter? No, crime scene and fingerprints. Crime scene and fingerprint? Yes, matching evidence and so forth. Okay. Not an investigator in the sense that you take statements from people. I do not do that. Okay. Don't interview witnesses out there at the scene? The closest I have come to that is if I arrived at a scene and then, well, take a burglary. He's still there and you asked him how he got in? Yeah, I'd say, show me where you think the guy got in, you know, that type of thing, rather than just roam around until I found it myself. that's why I would interview those types. But as far as statements, I don't do that. Okay. Not your job to interview witnesses to a particular event either, is it? It is not. Okay. When you made your determination that there was no intruder, you told the folks out there with you what your opinion was, didn't you? Yes. Okay. And that was within 20 to 30 minutes of the time you got there. My initial comment to them was that it looks to me like there was no intruder here. Of course, I did stay there longer, and I found things to confirm my opinion. One of the things to confirm your opinion was the prince here. The prince? No, that wasn't. No, that would be, but you are not the type of guy to say, I have already made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. Are you? No. Okay, now you said the first thing to do would be to take photographs. In that scene, since everything was primarily indoors, I said, yes, let's get photographs and record everything. And the next thing, you get the print man doing the prints. Well, the sketch, sort of, sketch man. The sketch went along with the photos and then the prints. I suggested come next because with people around, we wanted to collect any prints before they were contaminated by people touching objects. No shortage of manpower, though, was there? For certain jobs, there was. They had one latent print man. Well, you are a latent print man? Yeah, but I wasn't there to do the prints. You are mainly a latent print man, aren't you? I wasn't there to do that work for them. I didn't have my equipment with me. I went for just advice. What type of brush do you use? Well, here again, it depends on the surface. I have preferences. Do you prefer the camel hair? I prefer that. The short bristle, you know, there are long bristles, short handles, filament. Those are tools of your trade, aren't they? Yes, I prefer the camel. Okay. But I mean, wouldn't you expect a fingerprint man to know what kind of brush he was using? I would think that he would like to if that is his trade. I don't know if it matters if he knows he will get good results, but I guess professionally I would like to know what tools I'm using and equipment. Well, it would be kind of like asking a police officer what kind of gun he had and he wouldn't know. Yes, isn't it? I feel like a person That's primary job is to lift prints should know what type of brush. If they had done much of it? I don't know. Maybe they have done a lot of it, just don't know what brush they are using? Yeah, okay, but at any rate, you didn't attempt to take any prints? No, I did not. All right. But they took prints in the kitchen. That was the next order of business, wasn't it, after they did the prints in the garage? I really don't know if they went to the living room first, the kitchen next, or the door leading from the utility room into the garage. So I don't know the sequence that they lifted the prints. Did you check on their progress? No. Well, there wasn't much for you to do then. Was there? Yes. The advice came from determining from crime scene reconstruction advice of what I think actually occurred there. Well, I mean, once you told them that, well, once you told them that, I mean, there, this is no reason to keep telling them over and over and over again, is there? No. All right. But I mean, you didn't point out things, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then come back and check on them and see how they are doing. Well, they have been a police agency for a good number of years, and I didn't think they needed me to tell their routine dusting at a homicide or dusting at a criminal mischief. Dusting is dusting for prints. So I didn't follow them around. So what you are telling this jury is you have all the confidence in the world in Officer Main's ability to service the crime scene as it needs to be serviced. Within the guidelines I gave him, yes. Okay. Did you give him any, did you see some towels around there? There were towels in which area? There were some in the kitchen. There were some in the hallway leading to the front door. You just saw them in the hallway and in the kitchen? Well, and there were a few at the end of the couch in the family room. There was towels. How many towels? I don't know how many. And were they wet or dry? I didn't touch them. Did they have blood on them? some did, some did, and some didn't. I'm sure some didn't, but most did. Which ones didn't? I don't know. I didn't go around and check each towel individually. Well, I would think that bloody items would be important. They are. Okay, well, did you advise Officer Main that if you find two bloody items in the same general area, stick them both together and put them in the same bag? No. What's wrong with that? It's not good policy. What? There is a chance of contamination. Mixing two, one word, yes, mixing two bloods. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, but it's the opportunity there when two objects are in the same bag and one is damp. If it's wet, it's going to happen, isn't it? It could, yes. Can you think of a situation where it didn't happen when they were wet? I don't even know of a case where it did happen. I just know it could happen. Anytime two wet objects, if they are butting up to each other, where they are touching, of course, they are touching. They are going to transfer. But if they are on opposite sides, we don't know if the sack was shook or rolled over, you know. So what I'm saying is if you put two wet objects in there, where they are touching, they are definitely making contact. Well, can you imagine a situation where you put two wet? Say you put one dry item and one wet item in the same sack. Can you imagine a situation where the wet item would not make the dry item wet? Oh, it probably would. It's hard for me to relate to this because I never did that. Well, you don't approve of it, do you? No, I don't. Okay. Now, I don't know as much as you do about crime scenes. And you see, because I would have taken the photographs from the corners and then I would have processed the floor, the what? I would have processed the floor. Oh, okay. Before I would have turned somebody loose in there to take 300 photographs, I would process the floor. Is that not really? You want your photographs. If there was heavy traffic, if this were a hallway, and you didn't have, well, I don't know why they wouldn't be able to have control over the entry and exit, but if you could protect the floor, it's better to get the pictures because the pictures can show the location of evidence. It could show some of the patterns of the blood. No, you're missing. Maybe I'm not communicating. I said I would have taken the pictures first, but I would have taken them from the corners. Oh, that. I thought you said you would process the floor before you did the pictures. No, no. But then I would process the floor. Okay. I wouldn't turn somebody loose in there to take 300 pictures, you know, walking around like, you know, and a guy following him making a diagram. You said that was all done before they started processing it. Yes. You see, I would have scooped up the wine glass. Well, you see, the diagram didn't. The diagram was for the general outlay, similar to this drawing here. It was not to place each item of evidence in the sketch. That could be placed on after the examination. But going back to your photos, yes, I agree that photos from the corner of the room would have been better why didn't you advise them to take into custody the entire glass? There was no need to. How do you know there was no need to? It's just no need to. I mean, I can't think of any right at this given time in life here. I can't think of a need to collect all of it. Well, you were there when Maine was collecting the glass. Yeah, I was in the kitchen. I told him to collect some. He only got the glass without blood on it. Did you tell him to do that? No. I just told him to pick up some of the glass. Take some random samples? Yes. Well, any reason for him just to take the ones without blood on them and leave the ones there with blood on them? No, I don't know why. I didn't advise him on which pieces to pick up. I just said collect some of the glass. Well, you know the FBI actually can reconstruct a glass like that. Are you aware of that? I imagine they could with all the pieces there, but then we had the wine glasses there unless we were assuming that maybe it wasn't even one of those glasses off of the wine rack. So you just assumed? Yeah. You don't want to assume anything, do you? Well, they assumed Richard Jewell bombed Atlanta. I mean, I'm not saying the FBI does everything wrong, but I'm saying you don't ever want to ever assume anything except a 4% mortgage, right? Right. And not from bank one? Right. You won't get one from bank one. No, there is a need for that. If we felt like, or if I felt like we needed to say, did this glass come in? Did an intruder bring this glass? and we need to connect it to another scene, well, certainly we would collect every piece, okay? But when you have a wine rack right there with glasses, the stem was intact and the base was perfectly intact, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that it came out of there. So there is no need to collect it, in my opinion. Outside of trying to collect pieces to later compare, If there was an intruder to compare with the glass that might have been in the sole of his shoes, okay, while you were telling us what a rocket rocket scientist could and couldn't do, let me just ask you how you decided that wine glass was broken. How did I decide it was broken? Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. When I make my walking through the kitchen the first time, I had no earthly idea. I thought, well, maybe it was broken during the scuffle with the intruder. After I finished the walkthrough and went outside and came back inside, it looked to me like it had been broken there to simulate or stage an offense. A member of the household broke it and planted it there. Excuse me, would you repeat that? After I made the initial walkthrough, when I first went through, I didn't think anything of it. I thought it was broken, maybe in a scuffle. Yes, after I went back outside the house, finishing all of the inside, going outside, then coming back in, I based my opinion that there was no, on the whole scene, that there was no intruder, and I could only conclude that the glass was broken as part of the staging of this offense to make it appear like there had been an intruder. Okay. You didn't think that perhaps an intruder could have hit it with his arm running out of the area. We thought of that, yes, or I thought of it. Okay, but what made you believe that that couldn't have happened? Well, that with everything else in the scene, it would have been such a large series of coincidences and unusual things and inconsistent things that I didn't believe that occurred, especially after shaking the wine rack. And I couldn't dislodge any glasses without tilting it forward so far that they would all fall out of their rack. Okay, well, if you are right, if somebody just threw it down and broke it in an effort to stage it, you would expect for the glass to be on the floor, wouldn't you? The glass that was broken to be on the floor? Yes, sir, right? And you wouldn't expect to find a glass up on the shelves, would you? No, unless some of it fell off, bounced, or whatever up there. I don't know how hard they threw it down. Do you think that glass is going to hit the floor and bounce all the way up to a shelf three feet high? Was there glass on the top? Well, you're the guy who never overlooks anything. I didn't see any glass. I don't know. Well, put your good eye on this right now, and see if you can't see some glass. I never saw glass there. See if you can't see a shard. Let me point it out to you. Let me give you a, let me show you what has been marked for identification and record purposes as defense exhibit number 42. Would you point it out to me? Sure. Right there. Look at that. Okay. Well, I see. Would you circle it? I mean, there is a reflection that. Now, you identify fingerprints for a living, don't you? Yes, I don't identify reflections of light on glass like that looks to be. Okay. Did you have the presence of mind out there, Lieutenant, to look in the ice bucket, in the top of the ice bucket? In the ice bucket? No, I didn't open the ice bucket. Well, you know, if somebody bumped it on the way out and it broke before it hit the ground, you would likely find some glass on the shelf, wouldn't you? Well, if the glass was broke, say say this again. I said if somebody bumped it. This is so hypothetical here. I'm trying to go ahead. Well, you know, when we talk about this and we talk about reconstruction, you know, it's just common sense, isn't it? Yes, sir. It is. Is that right? It is and you don't have any more common sense than anybody in this jury box. Well, I might be able to look for things that they might not think to look for, but common sense-wise, that is what crime scene construction is, is things that happen, and it's common sense. That's right. But you are mainly a print man? No, I'm a crime scene man. I wouldn't be a certified senior crime scene analyst and head of the section. I don't want to go through all that again, but yes, I am a crime, sc- crime scene person. Right. Well, put your good eye on that crime scene and tell me whether or not you can see that glass shard. Well, if you are saying, I'm assuming you're saying that we have been through that assuming business. Well, I don't see anything. Okay. Cron then asks uh, Mulder, says, "Counsel, was that one of the original crime scene pictures?" And he says, "That is the one that the first picture is taken. I didn't take the picture. I don't know. You see, that could have been one of the follow-up pictures. And if that is glass up there, maybe that is where they laid a piece of it. Let's see if this just isn't a little bit better here. But I didn't see it that night." Can you see that, Lieutenant, in the picture there? Or here, you are welcome to step down here if you like. Well, I might want to look at that. It could have been one of the photographs taken after the initial photographs were shot, but it was not there when I looked at it. It says 6-6 of 96. That was the date of the offense. You see right here? We might, you see, here is the stem, and that is the if that is a piece of glass, which I have trouble seeing it as glass, it's something reflective up there, it's very likely is one of the follow-up pictures taken after the initial shots and the evidence collection. Well, I mean, that is convenient for you to disregard everything that isn't consistent with your having made up your mind twenty minutes after you got out there. No, that is basically what you want to do, isn't it? What? You want to ignore the. Because this doesn't corroborate your position. You chose to ignore it, don't you? No, I'm not ignoring it. Prints are only important if they match someone. When they don't match someone, we don't know. That could have been their years, or we don't know who. Who could have been. It could have been one of the children. Yeah, yeah. The crime lab? That is a likely story that you. No, it's true. They were small prints. The Dallas County Medical Examiner released the bodies for burial and failed to palm print them. Oh, now it's the medical examiner's problem. It definitely is. They made a major mistake on that. Did you look at the bodies? One body. Which body did you look at? The oldest boy, Devin, the one that was still at the scene when I arrived? Did you notice that he had two stab wounds in his chest? Yes. Well, they were, yes, I did. How many stab wounds did you see? I started to say more than two, but I didn't count them all. Okay. But you counted at least two. Is that what you're telling us? Yes. Could there have been as many as four? I don't know. That was the medical examiner arrived at that time. And they were loading the boy on the stretcher, and I just made a cursory look at him. I didn't, I wasn't, you, I wasn't doing it for that reason. Yes, sir. You knew he would have died rather soon after those wounds were inflicted? I would assume so, yes. From the positions of the wounds, I would say yes. Did you notice anything about the position of the wounds as to where the sharp edge of the knife was? I'm trying to recall. I think it would have been in a downward position. That is the what we would call the blunter edge of the knife would be up the sharp edge down. Do you remember? About just enough, it looked to me like they were vertical wounds. Were the wounds consistent? Did they look like they had been made from someone without that person changing their position? Oh, I don't have any opinion on that. No, sir. I tried to avoid that on some of these stabbing cases. That is getting into the medical examiner's area, and it's hard to determine at the scene. Well, if the wounds... Could you draw the wounds on here? Uh, Probably, not very accurately. I would just like to say for the record, I'm doing it from vague memory on them, and that I could be wrong. I thought they were vertical, I could draw a couple of marks on there. You thought they were both just straight up and down in that area, but here again, that wasn't the reason for me being at the scene, so I didn't make any type of good inspection. Would it have made any difference to you whether or not the boys were both killed with the same instrument? As regards to what? An intruder? No, as opposed to being killed with two different instruments. No, it wouldn't have made any difference to me. He could have used three different instruments and it still wouldn't have made any difference? Not really. I mean, I wasn't interested in how many weapons. Okay, so you wouldn't have, that wouldn't have entered into your equation, would it? On how many weapons? Yes. Not too much, no. Or really, okay, of course you could have picked up that entire glass from the floor, right? I would imagine all of the pieces were in the area. They probably could have reconstructed it. Okay, and that could have been sent into the FBI laboratory, and you know that they are able to determine the force necessary to break a glass in that fashion, don't you? Yes, okay. Now, when you examined the den you said you found no evidence of a violent struggle? Correct. Well, why would you expect a violent struggle? Because the information I had received was that an intruder stabbed two boys and stabbed their mother. She resisted him. He fled the scene. She went after him or followed him out. And, okay, so you interpreted so I would assume that something violent occurred in the living room. Well, you didn't find any evidence of a violent struggle in the family room. Is that right? By struggle, naturally, the two boys, that was your terminology. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but did you or did you not find evidence of a violent struggle? I did not. Okay, and the violent, again. That is not my word. That is your word. You were looking for a violent struggle. Yeah, I didn't think this was a peaceful killing. Okay, you wouldn't expect two youngsters to put up much resistance, would you? No. And you wouldn't expect someone killing two youngsters to get much blood on their hands, would you? Well, that I couldn't say. Oh, you can't say. No, I don't know. They might or they may not. You didn't find any blood on the fence. Is that right? That's right. And why did you check the fence for blood and scuff marks? Well, you thought, or cloth material, you know, just some signs of somebody going over it. Why would they go over a fence if they could go through a gate? That is what I was wondering. They aren't looking for a challenge, they are looking for a way out. Aren't they? Well, I would have been amiss if I had not checked the fence. That was part of the crime scene investigation. Naturally, I checked the gate, which was you would assume to be the normal route of entry and exit, but good policy is to check everything. Did you go back and make a final walkthrough? Yes. Okay. And this was after Maine had collected all of the evidence and he was going he was going to collect. Not really. My final walkthrough, what I would, my last one came about 3 p.m. Right. But after the photographs were began, they started taking pictures and doing a sketch and started in on the latent print collecting and some of the evidence collecting. I then made another walkthrough and that is where items were starting to be moved and I wanted to see what was under objects. So that would be termed a walkthrough, I guess, room to room as things were moved. Okay. Now, of course, I guess you were getting information. Is that right? If one of them was to say, look what I found, and I would walk over there, that type? Yeah. Yes. All right. Let me ask you this. Did they tell you, did the officers out there tell you that someone had attempted to break in a house four or five blocks from there, approximately 45 minutes before this was reported. Mr. Greg Davis then says, objection, that is hearsay. The court then says, sustained. Mr. Greg Davis says, would you please instruct the jury to disregard that last question from counsel? And the court says, yes, the jury is instructed to disregard that last question from the defense attorney. Mr. Mulder then says, well, let me ask you this. Did they tell you about any other break-ins in the neighborhood? Mr. Greg Davis again says, objection. We'll object to that as hearsay. The court says, sustain the objection. No hearsay, please. Mr. Mulder then asks, but would it have made any difference? Mr. Greg Davis again, objection. It's going to be hearsay. The court says, sustained. Kindly rephrase your questions. Mr. Mulder then says, well, now wait a minute. Now, judge, let me, with all due respect, are you saying that if there was a break-in next door that this man couldn't? The court then says, Mr. Mulder, if you will kindly ask your next question, please. Mr. Mulder says, well, the court then says, in a non-hearsay manner, you know how to do it. Thank you. Mr. Mulder then says, well, let's you made a big to-do about the mulch. Is that right? Yes, I mentioned the mulch. Right. And you said that this intruder didn't go through the mulch. He didn't run through it. He didn't run through it? No. I walked through it, and I didn't disturb it, and I said, so I saw no signs of running or hurrying through it. When you walked through it, were you able to look at it and tell that you had walked through it? No, I couldn't tell I did. It was, well, if you couldn't tell if you had walked through it, how could you tell if an intruder had walked through it? Well, because I didn't say an intruder had walked through it, I said an intruder didn't run through it and disturb it. You know, in my testimony, I said when I inspected the mulch, I walked through it and didn't leave any disturbed mulch. But when I ran through it and moved it with my hand, I did leave signs of disturbance. So I knew the intruder didn't run through it. Well, the intruder would have had to go out of his way to run through the mulch. Why would he run through the mulch when he could just stay on the sidewalk and the sidewalk goes right to the gate? Well, he would have had to have gone 12 feet out of his way to go on the sidewalk. It's 12 feet shorter to go through the mulch. Were there any shrubs in there? No. Or any plants in there? No. It's 23 feet from the window to the gate when you go through the mulch, and it's 35 feet if you stay on the sidewalk. Okay. We can see that from the aerial photograph, can't we? or the sketch, or whatever. Well, you are talking about coming out of this window right here. Yes, yes, sir. Can you see that? And going, would you like me to step down? Yes, if you would please. Let me just put it right here. I will hold it up. This is the gate right here, isn't it? Yes, the gate is here. All right. And you can come out that window and just go right like that, can't you? It's 35 feet from here, 12 feet to here. OK? I'm sorry. 23 feet. There's 12 feet difference. All right, 12 feet difference? Yes, OK. Let me show you what has been marked for identification and record purposes as defendants exhibits 43 and 44. Can you look at those and tell me whether or not you can identify those? I can. And those are photographs of that back area. Are they not? Yes. Okay. There was a turned over chair. And, you know, if we put these kind of together and patched them together like the other exhibits, I don't know whether we can, but at any rate, you would expect him to run around these obstacles. Would you not? Yes. And there are some shrubs in there, aren't there? Well, up close to the window. Yes. But anyway, you are not talking about saving any appreciable time by cutting across the mulch, are you? Seconds. Okay. Mr. Mulder then says, Judge, if we could take just a, are you about ready for your afternoon break? The court then says, Mr. Mulder, I will determine when we break, please. Thank you. Mr. Mulder says, would you give us just a minute or two? The court says, you may have a minute right there. He then says, thank you. Mr. Mulder then says, just one other thing. What other sort of brushes do they have for dusting for fingerprints? There is magnetic powder brushes. There's zephyr brushes, which is filament or material that, as opposed to feather or camel hair, that the powder can adhere to and spread evenly on latent prints. There's feather dusters. How about plastic or fiberglass? Yes, plastic and fiberglass. There's so many different styles out now. The fingerprint supply companies are in competition with one another, and there's quite a few types of brushes you can choose from. I guess they're all popular. Yeah, well, as we talked about, I prefer camel hair. We talked about that. Somebody else may prefer fiberglass or plastic? A feather. Yes, sir. Okay. Mr. Mulder then says, I believe that's all. Thank you. At this point, Mr. Greg Davis gets up to do his redirect and says, Mr. Asks, Mr. Cron, let me ask you, first of all, state's exhibit number 42, the window, is that an actual scale model of the actual window that is out there on 5801 Eagle Drive? Yes. Mr. Greg Davis then says, Your Honor, at this time we will offer state's exhibit 42. He then continues, Mr. Cron, can you give us a few examples? of some of the major homicides that you participated in as far as investigation goes? On the scene or just where I received evidence or somehow helped with a crime? Well, if you could, could you give us a couple of examples of on the scene, a couple of cases that stand out in your mind? Well, there was an ax murder in Wiley, Texas, several years back, which I cleared by identifying the defendant's print On a refrigerator door. She had denied it up to that point, but then Mr. Mulder says, Judge, we're going to object to any narration. The court then says, Overruled, you may continue. The witness continues. Another in Lancaster, Texas. Mr. Hagler says, Again, Your Honor, and he's part of the defense team, we will object to him going into details of specific offenses. Clearly, it's irrelevant to the issue at hand. And the court then says, I think he's merely describing the name of the offense. Mr. Mulder then says, well, Judge, he is describing the offense and how he did whatever he did, identifying the fingerprints. The court then says, thank you. Are you objecting? Mr. Mulder says, yes, sir. The court says, overruled. Thank you. Go ahead. Mr. Greg Davis then continues, let me just cut to it, I guess. Have you participated in a number of homicide investigations? where you were actually the crime scene man there at the scene? Yes. With regards to some of the other steps in the kitchen Mr. Mulder asked you about, did you see any of the other steps as being inconsistent with the two steps that we see here in States Exhibit 44-A and 44-B? No. With regards to the wine rack, sir, did you see any evidence whatsoever that someone had run into that wine rack while leaving the residence? No. Mr. Kron, looking here at State's Exhibit 36 C, do you see that, sir, what I am showing you? The photograph? Yes. Yes. Did you or some other officer balance these two openers on this little round object here while you were going through the house? No were those two objects still balanced up there as they are in 36C when you first saw that wine rack sir yes is this the wine rack that is standing right next to that broken glass on the floor yes the ice tongs they still were they perched up here on top of the ice container when you got there too yes you didn't place them there no i did not okay mr cron did you see a trampoline in that backyard A trampoline? Yes, sir. Where somebody would trampoline or vault over that six foot fence? No. Would you, based on your 39 years' experience, would you expect an intruder leaving this scene to go through the gate, close it, and then latch it behind him before he left? Not that difficult of a swinging gate, but I wouldn't expect any intruder to shut a gate when they were fleeing. Would you expect an intruder to go? through this window as Mr. Hagler, part of the defense team, says, excuse me, Your Honor, we object. This is all based on speculation. Furthermore, the witness is not qualified to give his personal opinion. The court says overruled, you may continue to ask the question. Mr. Davis continues, sir, based on your experience, would you expect an intruder to leave out that window, as Officer Frosch did this morning, very slowly and deliberately? not on exiting. He might have been a little slower on entering. Did you see whether or not anything happened to that pallet that I was holding while Officer Frosch went through that window? He bumped it and you caught it and kept it from falling. All right. That cat cage that is shown in those photographs, is that going to give like like that pallet was in my hand? No. One final area, sir. When you came to the conclusion that no intruder had come into that house, did you base that decision on one factor or several factors? Many factors. Could you please list those factors for us at this time? It's my opinion that an intruder did not enter the house and commit. Mr. Hagler, again, defense team says, Excuse me, this has already been gone through before, repetitious. The court then says, Overruled, continue. Kron then continues. My opinion that an intruder did not commit these offenses was based on the entire scene, not one object or item. It was based upon the point of entry starting there. There were no signs of entry or exit from somebody coming in at night from the outside. The type of cutting on a screen is inconsistent with the average or the known ways to enter cutting screens. This is all common sense. The screen will pull out very easily. The cuts were not made by the two latches at the bottom where the cuts normally are when the screen is removed. The dust on the sill. Criminals normally are not concerned with their footprints, footprints or heel prints or cloth prints from their clothing. They are not aware that we can make weave and cloth pattern comparisons. So anyway, there wasn't any signs that I could see of the entry and exit. There was no blood and so forth. The trail through the garage going in, I didn't expect to find a lot through there on the initial entry of an intruder. When the intruder got in, the fact that a knife was found in a knife block to commit the offenses with is inconsistent with the burglar that just came in and cut the screen. It's equivalent to coming in with one knife, putting it up and looking for another knife to commit the crimes with the stabbings with two there were there was a lot of jewelry and property laying in plain view and none of this was disturbed or touched there was none reported missing the wounds on the two boys were approximately the same that is deep penetrating wounds the wounds to the defendant were different in context different style of wounding the fact that I asked if the intruder made any statements, because that is part of the initial investigation, when you find that when you find that, and the officer related that the complainant didn't give any words or statements that the intruder said, this is unusual. I have never worked in a fence where somebody was fighting with a live victim, especially a man against a woman, to where vulgarity was not used as well as a lot of threats, that was not there. The cuts, they told me that she was cut on the neck and on both sides of her shoulder and arm. To fight an assailant, you should. There should have been some cast-off blood, which from flailing of the arms and the movement, and I didn't find any cast-off blood on the glass tabletop, on walls, arm level, high up. The intruder is supposed to have left the family room the family room area to go into the kitchen and then head for the utility room. In the area of the, right as you exit the family room, there was the glass on the floor, the vacuum cleaner, and barefoot prints. There was no footprints other than the bare footprints. There was no shoe or boot prints present. The glass was, some of the glass Was on top of the bare footprints, which would indicate the glass was placed there on top of the bloody footprints. I had the, I asked for the reports from the Baylor Hospital on the condition of the complainant or the defendants at this time, the defendant, then the complainant, bare feet to see if there were any cuts and scratches, which there should have cuts and scratches on her feet after stepping on sharp glass from the wine glass, broken glass and that was not there. There was no trail of bloody footprints leading from across the kitchen, and if the defendant had been stabbed either in the kitchen near the family room or in the family room and bleeding like she was, there should have been bloody footprints, left a lot of bloody footprints by the kitchen sink. At the garage door, that is the utility room leading into the garage door, There was some blood on the edge of the door, which is consistent with somebody touching it and looking out through there, shutting it or whatever, however it got there. I can't say what they were doing, but blood was on the edge of the door. There were dropped blood straight down or very slow movement droplets of blood on the utility room floor, going to and from the family room across the kitchen floor. Outside in the garage, the lack of any blood at all the blood that was found later, you know, it wasn't there during my initial inspection. The lights were on. It was bright. We did presumptive blood tests, which is a method of testing to see if a substance is blood at the scene prior to sending it to a crime lab, and the Rowlett Police Department had presumptive blood testing equipment, and we went over the floors in various spots, the garage door, the point of entry or exit, the window and found no traces of blood, animal, or human. The lack, or the fact that the gate was so difficult to open and shut, is inconsistent that somebody would have committed a crime like this and gone to the great care of shutting a gate behind them and latching it. It's just inconsistent with somebody fleeing a murder with a living witness that is armed. The intruder is supposed to have dropped the knife in the utility room floor. I have never known someone to arm their victim, which is what this would have been equivalent to. And all of these put together, the vacuum cleaner on top of the bloody footprints. In my opinion, no intruder committed these offenses. Mr. Greg Davison says, thank you, we will pass the witness. At this point, Mr. Mulder does a recross and says, or asks, I guess you think that somebody with their throat slashed and cut up is going to be a real threat to an intruder. I don't think they would be left alive. Okay, I guess all crime scenes are different. They are like people, aren't they? No. Well, generally, yes, yes. I believe that's all. Thanks. Mr. Greg Davis says no further questions. The court then says, thank you. You may step down, sir. And that essentially concludes the entire set of testimony from James Cron. So let's recap a little bit about what we've learned in this section of testimony from James Cron. And Darley's defense attorney, Mulder, he continues with the questioning of Cron about this this shoe impression that was found in the kitchen that had blood on it and it was a single-heel print impression. Later, it was found that it was Sergeant Walling's print, and Cron said that he had seen this during the initial walkthrough that he had done. Now, he was questioned about how Sergeant Walling's couldn't have tracked this anyplace else but just this one spot, And there wasn't really a great answer to this. The shoes of the officers and such were not checked until at a much later date uh, after they had found this shoe print. Now, Kron believes that the blood from the shoe print came from the carpet or the hallway. He didn't know. But the fact was, was that this heel print was only just one heel print. It showed no other tracking of the shoe until it was well into the kitchen. They also talk a little bit about the bloody bear footprints in the kitchen and Darley's attorney makes sure that people are aware that even though two bloody footprints are consistently talked about, there are other bloody footprints in the kitchen. They're focusing on the two, the prosecution is focusing on the two just simply because they're complete. Mulder then asks James Cron about whether or not the rug from the kitchen right in front of the kitchen sink and the rug in the utility room were taken into evidence. And he said he didn't know. But he did mention, Kron did mention, that he did see blood drops on the utility room rug. They then began talking about this bloody footprint. Again, this is separate from the one in the kitchen, the bloody footprint in the garage. And Kron said that it appeared after they had already done their initial walkthrough. So on his initial walkthrough, he said he never noticed it. And later on, as he's going back through, all of a sudden it's there. He said that it had to be an officer he was with. um, It had to be either neighbors, Hamilton, Walling, or Maine because that's who he was with in the house. He does talk when they first got there. Kron does talk about this whole group walking from the front door to the back of the house. And as they're walking, they're talking. And Mulder mentions that, so was this kind of like an OJT or an on-the-job training for the officers of Rawlett. And Kron says no. They were just telling him what they had learned about what had happened. But just the mention of this, though, and that this whole on-the-job training thing in front of the jury infers that the officers need to be trained a little bit on how to process the scene. Cron also said that it was Sergeant Walling who had told him about what had occurred uh, for the crime and that Walling had gotten this information from Darley in roughly 30 seconds. Now, Cron was not aware that Walling had this gotten this information in this very, very short period of time. When Kron got to the family room, he said that he noticed evidence of medical intervention, and then he walked into the kitchen, where he then saw the vacuum cleaner lying on the ground near the sink area. Mulder then asked Kron about when he did his report, and went through, reported all of his findings, and we find out that it wasn't until the 16th, so 10 days after he had done this walkthrough, it wasn't actually until the 16th of June. Now, and this wasn't even a written report, this was a verbal report that was given, but while he was at the scene that day, he had already mentioned something to the officers there, and this is when he told the officers that hey, there was no intruder here. And his whole walkthrough, if you remember, took around 20 to 30 minutes, and that's it. So then again, they go back to this vacuum cleaner, and Mulder, the defense attorney, says something that Walling, when he initially came through the house with Waddell, had said something to the effect that the vacuum wasn't there when he was in the house. But Cron then says that, hey, neither of these officers ever mentioned that. Now, remember, Waddell, he was the first one on the scene. He was the one who came into initial contact with Darley, and he was the one that was there while she was on the phone with 911. Now, Walling was the second officer on the scene. Now, their testimonies have already happened, and if you're interested... Wallings, the second officer on the scene, is episode number 48. And Waddell's, the first officer on the scene, is episode number 46. And I'll be sure to have links to those in the show notes. Now, as he's, as the defense attorney is talking about this vacuum cleaner and says, hey, you know, they said it wasn't there when they first walked through. The prosecutor then interrupts and says that this is a misstatement of testimony. They said that they didn't see it, not that it wasn't there. So after a few more statements by the defense, again, the prosecution objects, and everyone wants to get this statement made by the officer about this vacuum cleaner exact. And it is suggested that they have the court reporter read it back. Makes sense to me. But the judge says, quote, Let's just keep going. So then the question and answer goes on about Kron going into the backyard and looking at the fence uh, for blood. He is asked if he thought the suspect would have been bleeding, but he said not necessarily. He may have had blood on his clothes or his hands from the victims, but he never did find any blood on this white wooden fence in the backyard. They then go on to discuss the gate. And if you remember, there were scuff marks at the bottom of the gate fence. Now, James Cron was told that an officer, and this happened to be Officer Walling, said that he had to use his foot to open the gate. And I don't remember that in his testimony. I may have to go back and listen to that. But nonetheless, this is what Walling told Cron. And Kron then just assumed that, hey, that's probably what caused the scuff marks. But there's no testimony, at least yet, that talks about him like taking a shoe or one of the officers actually taking a shoe and, you know, demonstrating this or doing it against another surface just to test and see if the shoe left any scuff marks at all. Now, next, it's on to the window itself. And Mulder mentioned the demonstration of Frosh, that officer, going through the window in court. Now, Frosh, not once, after going through this window, he didn't even knock the screen loose because they left the screen in there, just cut open the way that it was. He didn't leave any prints where they supposedly found some. And remember, Frosch is a large guy. They refer to him as being the size of a linebacker. He is also the same size of a man that Darley said was the guy that she saw inside their house. Cron then says that, well, hey, someone who had committed the crime at the house wouldn't have been so careful and they would have been in a hurry. They wouldn't have been as careful as Frosch was there in court. Next, it's brought up that They really change tactic here and move on to the types of brushes that Kron uses for gathering fingerprints. And he's asked if he has a preference for the type of brush that he uses. And he says, yes, he does. He prefers camel hair, but that there are many different kinds. This then leads to questioning about if this is somebody's trade, that they should know what type of tool that they're using. And Cron agrees that if they're professional about their job, they should know this. We do know that the fingerprint guy, Officer Hamilton with the Rowlett Police Department, wasn't sure. He was asked this in his test or in court and his testimony, and he says he wasn't sure what kind of bristles were in the brush. Um, this would be episode number 72. Again, I'll have a link for it in the show notes if you're interested. But I do know, I think I have an idea as to where he's going with this, where Mulder is going with this. But then they again change tactic and move on to talk about how essentially it's unprofessional to put two crime scene items in the same bag together. Now what this does is this goes back to the towels that were located in the, I believe it was the hallway... And two of them get put into the same bag by Officer Main. They then go on, and all of this is leading somewhere. (laughs) They then go on, and Mulder asks him, asks Kron, why the wine glass itself wasn't taken into custody. And he said that there was no need to. He did tell Officer Main to collect some of the pieces of glass that were on the floor, and he only picked up the ones that didn't have any blood on them. So all of this, all of these different questions about the the wine glass picking up the pieces that don't have blood, the putting the two towels together in the same bag, the bristles, not knowing what kind of bristles you're using for a fingerprint guy, and so forth and so on, is really just painting a picture by the defense as to how lacking in crime scene investigation the Rowlett Police Department actually was. So Mulder then takes Kron through what he did when he did his initial walkthrough Um, and he's still talking about this wine glass and Kron says he didn't really think anything about the wine glass thinking that it was broken in a scuffle but after he had already gone through the whole scene including the backyard and had just determined that it was someone from inside the home He then therefore just said, well, this glass is here because it was staged. Now, a shard of glass, and this was really interesting testimony, a shard of glass is then shown to him in a photo that actually ended up three feet from the floor. And there's this picture of it. And. Mulder then points this out and says, well, hey, did you notice this? Here's this. And of course, this is going to totally play into Kron's ego because Kron total, he just he just believes that he doesn't overlook a damn thing. Now, this shard is on top of the ice bucket that is on the wine rack there in the kitchen. And the theory is that the glass had broken off of the rack before it landed on the ground and... Shattered. So the glass had toppled over onto the top of the wine rack, broken, at least that's what I gather, and this piece kind of went up by the ice bucket, and then the rest of it fell on the floor. And he was shown the photo defense exhibit number 42, and if I have that, I'll put that on the website. And Kron says, nope, he didn't see anything. And Cron then asked, because he... You know, it's my belief. He's sitting there thinking, there's no way that I could have missed that. I just, that's just not something that I do. Kronis then asks the defense attorney, Mulder, he's like, well, hey, when was this photo taken? Was it one of the original crime scene photos? Because, you know, if it wasn't, somebody might've just laid it down there. Even when the picture showed that it was taken on the day of the crime, the date is printed right there on the photo, Kron still questions it, saying it may have, may have been there for years, because, you know, Kron in no way could ever, ever be wrong. Cron then says that his final walkthrough of the house was at about three o'clock in the afternoon, and he said he did it at this time because he wanted all of the photos, the sketches, and the fingerprints to be taken, And once this was all done, they could now start to move items within the house. And he wanted to be around when they started moving things to see if there was anything under any of these objects. So the defense then asked if he knew, if Cron knew, that, hey, did you know that there was an attempted break-in about 45 minutes before this crime at the Routiers? And it happened just four or five blocks away. So, of course, the prosecution then objects to it as hearsay. The judge sustains it and then tells the jury to disregard that last piece of information, which, of course, you know they are definitely not going to. Mulder then asks if Cron has heard of any break-ins in the area. And the same thing happens. The prosecution gets up and objects to it and the judge sustains it. Mulder then asks Cron, If it would have made a difference in his opinion and again this is objected to and sustained by the judge and the judge just finally says hey you just need to move on which he does and he starts talking about the mulch that's outside of the garage window in the backyard now cron didn't believe that the intruder would have been through the mulch because or didn't go through the mulch because it wasn't disturbed Kron then says that even when he tested it and he walked on it himself, he could not disturb the mulch, but then said an intruder may have just run through it. Now, this mulch is way out of the way. And then they get into how far of a distance it is between the walkway and the mulch. And it's something like 12 feet and Kron, at least from what I gathered, truly believed hey if somebody's really in a hurry they're not going to take the walkway they're just going to go run through the mulch which may be true may not be true Uh, you can't say either way so the defense then finishes their questioning and the prosecution goes into their redirect where they begin to talk about some ice tongs that are still balanced on the wine rack and this is exhibit 36-c Now, earlier, Kron had said that he had shoved the wine rack. I don't know if you recall that, but he had moved it to see if any of the glasses that were still hanging on there would fall off and break like the one that he found on the floor. But the fact that these tongs are still there just laying on top of this ice bucket just makes me wonder how hard exactly did he shove this wine rack. Now I was curious about these ice tongs because the testimony seemed to imply that they were just laying there on top of the ice bucket. So when I looked at this picture, I couldn't quite see where these tongs were. So I went into Photoshop and enhanced it to see if I could make it a little bit clearer. And so you will be able to see this, this States Exhibit 36-C, at beachhouse34.com. Now this is as soon as the website is available. If you remember the last time uh, I had said I'm I'm moving platforms and so it's going to be a little bit, but it should be good to go with the most like two weeks from now. So if you're really interested in seeing what that looks like, I kind of enhanced it so you could see it a little bit better. The ice tongs in this picture, which are gold and they're actually stuck there in the ice bucket. They're not along the top, just lying there. So this would make it difficult to knock out of there anyway. Kron is then asked if, hey, if an intruder is escaping out this garage window and they go out the gate, would they shut the gate? And he said no. The prosecution, Greg Davis, then asked Kron to go over all of the reasons he believes that there was no intruder so this is kind of his little recap that he does and to give everybody an idea as to what his line of thinking was so cron says that it was based on the entire scene not just on the point of entry uh, but it does start there there were no signs of entry or exit from someone coming in the screen was cut in such an unusual way, not the typical way to cut a screen, which I don't know exactly what that would be, the screen quickly also comes out and it wasn't removed. The knife found in the knife block that was used to commit the murders was inconsistent because the burglar already had a knife because he used it to cut the screen. Although, just my opinion, If he didn't want to use his own weapon, if it wasn't long enough, sharp enough, etc., then he wouldn't. Kron then says that nothing was taken from the home, the wounds on the boys were different than what was on Darley, and the intruder never said anything to Darley, per the officer's account of what Darley had told him. Now, if Darley fought with someone there, there would have been cast off blood, and there was none. There were no footprints or boot prints leading out of the house. Bloody footprints were found underneath the glass in the kitchen. Darley had no cuts or scratches on her feet. If she was bleeding, as she said, then there should have been more bloody footprints, which we've learned that there actually was. Slowly dropping blood went to and from the utility room through the kitchen, which this was in previous episodes, but it indicates that somebody is walking, not running. And in the garage, there was no blood. There were no traces of blood on the window, uh, including the vacuum on top of the bloody, so there's a bloody footprints on the kitchen floor and the vacuum lying on top of that. And he has never known an intruder to quote-unquote arm a victim. And he's referring to the intruder dropping the knife on the utility room floor, thus giving Darley the opportunity to pick this up and go use it uh, on the intruder. So when this is all done and the prosecutor sits down, Mulder gets up and asks one question. And the only question that he has is whether or not someone who had their throat cut would even be a threat at all. And Kron just simply says that, well, they usually aren't left alive. And that, listeners, is the end of James Cron's testimony and the recap of this particular episode. Now, the next episode will be the testimony of Helena Saban Saban. I don't know if I'm saying this correctly. I'll have to get that figured out. And Helena did some laundry and cleaning at the Routier home on June 4th and 5th, so the days just prior to the crime. She actually happens to be the mother of a woman named Barbara Jovell, who is a friend of Darley's, and Barbara's testimony comes right after her mother's, but it's on the following day. So with that being said, thank you all for listening. As a reminder, the website is being moved and updated. So if you happen to stop by and nothing's there, it will be soon. If you haven't already, please, please, please hit that subscribe button wherever you listen, whether on YouTube or your favorite platform. It helps the show out so much. Thank you all. The next episode will be out shortly.